0: This evening, um, so I'd also like to thank the many uh communities and institutions on campus who've also contributed great to making this event possible. These include the Department of Political Studies, the Italian Center for Jewish Studies, the Sanford Initiative for Religious and Ethnic Understanding and Existence, Mutual Coexistence, <laughs> the McCoy Family Center for Ethics and Society, and perhaps um, sorry as long as the Center for Prepared Studies of Race and Ethnicity. basically has everyone on campus. Yeah. <laughs> if I were larger, I would be better just in your arms. Um, you see how much we, we wanted you to be here this thing through all the words we uh, of Chicago. Um, I don't know if you guys are an introduction, but I'll just say a few brief words for us who may need a reminder. Originally from Lahore, Pakistan, Mohsenha is a is the author of three major novels, three critical thing novels, which speak to Pakistan and to, to the world. Um, the most recent one, which by the way is outside for you to purchase, um, How to Get Filthy Rich in um, Rising Asia, um, just appeared last year. Uh, it's getting wonderful reviews. Last year was another very important year because um, his novel, Developed Fundamentalist, of 2007, was made into a film directed by Miran which is also wonderful, though it differs from the novel, perhaps we can ask him to comment on, on the actual novels and, and film. His first novel, which is really um, another very important work of 2007, is entitled um, um, and It is a, a beautiful work about different Pakistan, but also invites us to think about um, the Mughal past, the broader South Asian past, through a very clever literary device, um, which helps us think about Shah Jahan and his sons. So it, it speaks to a number of different subjects and, and registers. So, um, Wilson Hallman was educated at, at Princeton University where he was um, he studied at the Woodrow Wilson School at Princeton University. Um, I will divulge any more about his ties to Stanford, which he can do himself if he'd like. But so he apparently has, I discovered tonight, very deep ties to, to our university, which is wonderful here. Um, and then he studied law at Harvard before embarking on other things, before finding his career as, as a writer. So, um, again, he's celebrated by readers, uh, artists, and critics alike as one of the greatest stylists, I think, of, of our generation, of his generation. Um, I would add humorist and, and many other things. But for is purposes, uh, in the university context, I'd also highlight his uh, very important contribution to one uh, of some of our broader concerns about the representation of Islam, about Muslims, and about understanding our world since 9 11. So, in this context, I've actually taught the Luxury Fundamentals to high school students here from East Palo Alto, from Pescadero. Mostly, um, mostly Catholic Latino kids um, from schools that are, that are struggling to some degree. Um, and the course was a, an attempt to, to imagine a kind of global history and of our world since 9-11. And um Ahmed's book was really, I think, the, the kernel of the course, and it did more than any other text there to help these young most Latino kids understand our world, understand America's place in it, and to see something in themselves in you know, a Muslim Pakistani. So that, um, for that achievement, I give him all the more credit. Beyond all the, the stylistic brilliance, the comedy, and everything else that is, in his work, um, this is a rare instance in which we have a living author who has so much to say about our contemporary world um, in a way that's meaningful for historians and, and other scholars who are seeking to identify text which helps students to come to grips with a very complex present, our global present. So in that sense, I think the, his work is important for so many ways. So we're so grateful to have him here. I'll turn it forward to him now. He's agreed to say a few remarks. He will then take some questions, and then um, he will sign a few books out um, front, up first. So thank you all for coming, and thank you for coming.
1: Thank you, Robert. Uh, thank you all for coming, um, and thank you uh, uh, for inviting me back to Stanford. It's it's. Um, Stanford is a special place for me because uh, I sort of began my education at Stanford. My dad did his PhD here. And so I was living in Stanford, California from 1974 to 1980 in Escondido Village uh, as a three-year-old. um, and uh, uh, in fact one of my dad's best friends from uh, probably his best friend in fact from his Stanford days Blake Downing is sitting in the audience um, so so there's a real family connection for me um, to be here in this room with with you um, but uh, uh, when I moved to California in 1974 um, I spoke Urdu fluently I moved from Pakistan uh, my dad had gotten into the economics program he's doing his PhD here and my mother, my father, and I flew over and moved into one of those townhouses in Eskina Village, which you've seen, they all look exactly the same. And, um, and one day, shortly after we moved in, my mother heard crying and went to the you know the shared common lawn in front of this um, uh, townhouse and discovered that I was standing in front of the neighbor's townhouse. Um, and the uh, neighbor was looking down at me, a bit perplexed, why is this kid here? I was looking at the neighbor, <laughs> perplexed, this is clearly not my mother. And, um, and I was surrounded by a group of young kids, and um, the uh, uh, they asked my mother, "Well, why can't he talk?" And she said, "You know, he can talk, uh, uh, but he just doesn't speak English." Anyway, I went inside, and um, and then I didn't speak for a month. Uh, my parents tell me, um, and uh, and they were worried because it was very unusual for me to not speak for more than five minutes. And so, a month, my mother thought, "You know, we should take him to see a doctor." My father said, "No, he'll be okay." And a month later, when I began to speak, I was, spoke English um, in complete sentences and with an American accent. And, uh, and then I ventured forth, you know, into the world as a little Californian English-speaking kid. Uh, and I'm telling you this story in part because, uh, uh, it, it, for me, what it means is that not only do I have a tie to Stanford, but um, that I don't really have a first language. Um, English uh, is my second language, uh, but it's my best language. You know, since the age of three, it's been a language I speak better than any other. Um, When I went back to Pakistan in in, uh, 1980, my, my father finished his PhD. My mother was working at Ampex down in Redwood City. My sister was born here, and then we moved back to Pakistan in 1980. And at that point, my parents discovered that I'd forgotten my Urdu. And so so English is my second language, but it's my best language. I had to relearn Urdu at the age of nine. I went to school in Pakistan and learned how to speak and write and go to school in Urdu as well. Um, But Urdu is now my third language in a way. It was my first, but I lost it as a first language. Um, So my English is better than my Urdu and uh, And as a result you know i 'm somebody who um, you know is in in a very real sense um, uh, it's it's sort of impossible for me to pretend um, that I belong completely to any one group uh, linguistically um, you know I cut across groups uh, nationally i've lived in uh, Pakistan in america um, in the u k um, and so I've always, I guess, in a way, been resistant to the idea that that you can look, you can take groups at face value. And even now, when people in Pakistan ask me, um, you know, how do how do American readers respond to the Rutten fundamentalist? Um, uh, I always answer, there's no such thing as American readers. You know, there's 300 million different people in America, and they each read, you know, differently. Um, and similarly, when I'm asked about Pakistan, you know, how do, what do Pakistanis think about this? My answer is sort of similar, which is to say that there's 180 million different Pakistanis and there's, you know, a very wide variety of, of viewpoints. Um, and a lot of what I've been trying to do in my writing subsequently is, is to sort of recomplicate, I think, what's been oversimplified. Um, you know, the idea that there is this America and this Pakistan and they are like individuals and each has a point of view. Um, I think people like me uh, are kind of evidence that that can't entirely be true. So I spent my teens in Pakistan, came back to America um, in 1989 to study at Princeton. Um, And while I was at Princeton, I uh, enrolled in a creative writing course. Uh, I didn't major in creative writing, but uh, I took some creative writing courses with Joyce Kurlotz and with Toni Morrison. and completely fell in love with the idea of writing fiction. Um, I suppose I'd always been a kind of fantasist. You know, I was the kind of kid who uh, you could leave me alone with a bunch of blocks, and I would just, you know, imagine that they were a fortress or a mountain or whatever. Um, when I was in Eskdale Village, um, going to elementary school, not far away from here. Um, I wrote, just after Star Wars came out, a little uh, galactic space opera with, you know, uh, stick figure illustrations um, based on Star Wars and Battlestar Galactica and Buck Rogers and all the other sci-fi TV shows and movies of the 1970s. Um, So I've always been a bit of a fantasist, but I never really thought that I would write fiction for a living. Um, I'm still not convinced anybody can write fiction for a living, uh, although I'm doing it full-time at the moment, but uh, I, went to, I went to college and I s- discovered I really loved doing this, and so I took a year off to work on um, my first novel, Moth Smoke, um, and in a sense what I wanted to do in, in this novel, uh, uh, I'll tell you a little bit about it, um, I wanted to write about a a Pakistan and a South Asia um, that i hadn 't really seen much represented in fiction but yet was the milieu you know from which I came and um, in particular, in the 1980s when I was growing up in Lahore, um, another uh, Afghanistan war was going on in those days. The Soviet Union had um, uh, occupied Afghanistan and was supporting a uh, a regime um, uh, ostensibly a communist regime and for similar purposes they were saying that you know uh, that this is a more secular regime it protects women's rights it's you know much more progressive and the mujahideen would be portrayed by uh, the soviets as you know a regressive retrograde you know bunch of religious maniacs um but pakistan and america of course were engaged in arming and equipping the Mujahideen uh, to go fight their jihad against the Soviet Union, with you know, much blowback for both countries, but particular, particularly Pakistan, as, as we all now know. Uh, but growing up in that place in the 1980s, a, a few things were going on. The first was we had a, a dictator ruling Pakistan uh, named Ziaul Haq. Um, and he was engaged in a process of Islamization, um, trying to make the country more Muslim somehow. Pakistan's a country where 97% of people self-identify as Muslim, so it's a little hard to make it more Muslim. But um, <laughs> but but he managed, and uh, you know horrifically. And so what wound up happening for those of us who were growing up in those days was, um, first of all, there were all kinds of legal changes that came in. Democracy was shelved. Um, <laughs> quote-unquote Islamic laws were being introduced that um, curtailed women's rights, that curtailed minority rights, that uh, involved punishments like flogging and all sorts of things. Um, uh, most of which passed over my head, but as a teenager what, what, what we saw was um, there was a massive increase in in drugs and weapons in the city of Lahore. So, when I moved back in 1980, Lahore was a city where, as a nine-year-old, you could hop on your bicycle and bike for five miles, you know, on a, a Thursday evening, in Thursday, those days, Friday was the weekend, um, Thursday evening, to your grandfather's house, and nobody would think twice about it. By the time I left, of course, it was a very different city. Uh, Lahore, Pakistan, 1980, had almost no heroin addicts. By 1989, it had a million. And, um, and what happened was that you know, a big part of the economy of of the sort of Afghanistan um, war economy and warlord economy was financed through heroin production, um, and uh, uh, and so this heroin was being produced, of course, during the war. Um, on top of that, uh, because of the alliance with the United States, you know, Pakistan um, signed up to sort of a. Uh, to to control the outflow of heroin from Pakistan to the rest of the world which was only partially successful. Um, A lot of heroin still left Pakistan for Europe and America and elsewhere but a lot of it stayed and and in the process of of preventing a lot of heroin from leaving um, I think the the drug industry, uh, the drug mafia um realized well there's a lot of potential heroin users here so i grew up in a in a in a city where heroin use was increasing rapidly um hash was you know marijuana was very widely available becoming more and more widely available because alcohol was being curtailed as a as a you know non-islamic drug so uh, hash was was proliferating um and guns uh, there's, there's a huge amount of weaponry that was flowing into the Afghanistan war, and so Lahore was suddenly flooded with AK-47s. It became not unusual to see, you know, people, um, you know, having guards at their houses who were armed with Kalashnikovs. Uh, when I arrived in Lahore, there were no guards at people's gates, and you know, people left their front doors open for the most part. But by 1989. Um, Lahore, you know, had changed in a way that we've seen many other countries change, you know, the way that Mexico has changed, the way that Colombia has changed. Um, you know, we sometimes look at around the world at, at, at countries and imagine there's very different stories for how they became as violent as they are. Um, but oftentimes the stories are, are actually quite similar. Uh, so I wanted to write a novel. Um, about this urban reality, you know, of, of you know, pot smoking, occasionally hard partying, um, uh, uh, money conscious, um, uh, sometimes armed, uh, urban reality of, of contemporary Lahore. And that, that's what became *Mott Smoke, my first novel. Um, and uh, uh, it, it was, as, as Roberts told you, it, it, uh, it took as a frame a story that took place in the Mughal Empire um, perhaps 350 years ago or 400 years ago. And the Mughals, uh, the name comes from Mongol, um, were one of you know, many people who invaded uh, and conquered um, South Asia and were Muslim rulers of, of this place. Um, and one particularly important moment in the succession of the empire took place when Shah Jahan um, had, had to pass power to his kids. And the Mughals, like the Mongols, had a very meritocratic system of deciding who the next king was going to be. It was, you know, sort of an um, uh, up-or-out promotion mechanism. And the way it worked was all of the children of the Mughal king, emperor, um, would fight to the death, and the one who lived uh, was the one who should be king. So a great titanic battle began, and, um, and this battle involved among others, two young men who had spent a big chunk of their childhood in Lahore, uh, Aurangzeb and Dara Shikoh. Dara Shikoh was a, um, a cosmopolitan heir. Uh, he believed, and he was much beloved of, of, of non-Muslim subjects and the court. He translated the Upanishads, the Hindu Upanishads, into Persian. Um, he was a wine drinker and a poet. Um, and uh, uh, he was accused of apostasy and, and sentenced to death by his brother Onzeb, When Ornzev won. Ornzev himself um, was a, a very severe young man, uh, not much loved by his father and he was sent off to fight these unwinnable military campaigns, mm-hmm. off to fight the Iranian border, the Afghan border, South India, etc. His dad didn't much like him and kept sending him off to fight these battles, expecting he would die, but he never did. And um, there's a wonderful, in fact, if you are at all interested, the letters that Aurangzeb writes to his father still exist. And they're available also in English translation. So you can read Aurangzeb writing to his dad. And, and it's quite beautiful to read this young man saying, you know, well, Dad, um, you sent me off to do this, and you know, I've done it. Please bring me back to Delhi. I miss your company, etc. And his father says, no, no, no. Now you head off to meet some other, you know, bunch of merciless barbarians. Um, and what happened as a result of this was um, inside Aurangzeb, of course, a certain um, anger was was uh, festering, um, but also. Um, uh, he became an incredibly skilled uh, commander of men, um, warrior, uh, he was battle-hardened. And so when Shah Jahan's health began to fail him um, and the battle to uh, determine who would succeed him was waged, uh, Aurangzeb comes back towards uh, Delhi and Agra, the capitals in Lahore. and. Um, and he defeats the much larger army of, uh, of Dara Shikoh and also the armies of his brothers. Um, imprisons his own father uh, opposite the Taj Mahal, which was built as a symbol of love um, by Shah Jahan, for Shah Jahan's uh, wife Mumtaz, Aurangzeb's uh, father and mother. Uh, imprisons his dad, uh, gets Dara Shiko, uh, has him tried for apostasy, the crime of, you know, um, uh, uh, of as a Muslim in a sense, either renouncing Islam or, or behaving in a way which is, which is anathema to Islam, um, has his head chopped off um, and, uh, uh, and launches the Mughal Empire in a much more puritanical form. Uh, there are pogroms against the Sikhs under Aurangzeb and in fact some people would say that the, a big part of the massive bloodshed that took place in the Punjab um, at partition can be traced to the venality with which Aurangzeb persecuted Sikhs and others um, during his reign. So I wanted to kind of retell this story in contemporary Lahore. Mm-hmm. And and Maud smoke uh, uh, conjures up these historical figures. Um, but uh, Dara now is a pot-smoking ex-banker <laughs> who falls in love with his best friend's wife. And Aurangzeb is the son of a, a corrupt uh, bureaucrat Um, Neither is particularly religious uh, in the novel, Um, and Mumtaz who of course is their mother historically becomes the wife of one and the lover of the other in the novel, and a sort of contest between them ensues. Um, This novel was published uh, in the year 2000, and um, when it came out, before it came out, there was some concern, for example my Indian publisher, Penguin India, uh, wondered, you know, Uh, whether this would ruffle feathers, whether this kind of take on um, life in a Muslim country, in quotes, um, would be okay. Uh, as it turned out, it, nothing much, I didn't really encounter any, any real backlash on Maud's Milk. Some people didn't like it. Many people didn't believe it. A lot of the older generation in Pakistan would say things like, you know, come on, this stuff doesn't happen in Pakistan. You know, all this all the sex and drugs. And um, <laughs> one of my, my granduncles, my, my, um, my father's uncle, paternal granduncle, who had been on the Supreme Court of Pakistan, was a retired Chief Justice, called me to his house had, having read the book. And, uh, uh, and he looked at me sort of severely, he said, I've read your book. It's my paternal granduncle." And he said, you've clearly gone on your mother's side of the family. <laughs> <laughs> and and that was pretty much as bad as it got. Um, some people didn't like it, obviously. It was made into a television uh, uh, telefilm on Geo, uh, as as, a, as called Daira. Um, uh, that was an adaptation which took place in 2003. Um, but by and large, I was surprised by. Um, uh, Pakistan's, I'm not surprised by it, I was, I was, I was um, reassured that the reception the, the book had was I, I suppose many people ignored it, most people had no idea it existed but it didn't engender any kind of a, of a um, you know, backlash that I was aware of. Um, and it reminded me that you know Pakistan has such a long tradition of, uh, of, of writing uh, and critique and very often uh, of profanity you know, Manto, the most famous short story writer from Lahore, was, was often very profane. Um, and, and Lahore itself, the most famous uh, uh, shrine in Lahore, uh, which we call Datta was named after al Hajveri, who was a thousand years ago um, a, a Sufi scholar, uh, most noted for writing a multi-volume treatise on sort of the Sufi path. And today, you can go to Dutta Saab and see thousands of people who come to this writer's tomb to venerate him and, and, and sometimes pray to have their uh, illnesses banished, etc. Um, so, so Lahore and Pakistan have, have long been fertile territory for writers, and I found that to be the case personally. Um, I then began to work on my next novel, which is called uh, The Reluctant Fundamentalist, and I wrote... The first draft of it, when I was working in New York City, after Princeton I went to law school, I went to Harvard Law. Um, I never thought I could make a living writing books and so I thought I would make a living as a writer. Discovered I didn't much like the law um, and three years later, uh, $100,000 in debt uh, emerged um, and I got a job as a management consultant in New York City. So I was paying off my loans living in New York and working on a novel. And I wrote this novel, which I gave to my agent in July 2001, around my 30th birthday. And the novel um, told the story about a Pakistani guy, um, a Muslim guy, living in New York City, working in a corporation who um, grows a beard and goes back to Pakistan after a kind of disastrous love affair. And my agent didn't much like it and he said, you know, it doesn't work on multiple levels and also I don't really buy this whole, like this Pakistani guy, he feels this tension with America, you know, where's that coming from? And, um, <laughs> and you know, he was, he was right. It was actually the, the draft was, like my first book, Watt's book took seven years and seven drafts. This book would also wind up taking seven years and seven drafts. This was the first draft. And my first drafts are always terrible. Um, but then two months later, September 11th happened. The Attacks of uh, 9-11-2001. And, um, and about a month or two after that, you know, my agent called and said, you know, that book about the Muslim guy feeling this tension <laughs> <laughs> with America. Um, the problem for me was I'd written a quiet little fable, almost a parable, um, uh, about you know, really just, just sort of a, a quiet love story and a story of, of love for a place and, and love for a person and, and the end of that love. Um, and an investigation of you know what it's like to work in this corporate world, etc. Um, but the the events of 9/11 and the horror, horrific you know terrorist atrocities of 9/11 and the wars that were uh, unleashed subsequently and the horrors visited all around the world um, uh, had overwhelmed my little quiet parable about uh, this you know personal disenchantment. So for. Two or three years, I couldn't really see incorporating 9/11 into my novel. I kept rewriting it and ending it as it originally ended in July 2001, saying I don't want to deal with 9/11 and this whole war on terror stuff. The problem was that I, I kept having the impression that, you know, whatever I did, if somebody read this book, here's a Muslim guy living in New York who leaves in July 2001. The end. Um, the reader, the reader then says, I think would say. And then 9-11 happens, you know, as though the whole book is sort of teeing up this off-screen event, which we all know is about to occur. The whole thing felt like a prologue to 9-11. Um, and there was no question I could send it like 10 years earlier, because I didn't, I didn't really know that period of New York City. Um, so I was grappling with this. And eventually I said, OK, well, I will incorporate 9-11 into this book. Um, uh, so I moved the book back one year to take place during the year uh, of 2001 and 2002. The question then became how to write it. Um, and so I tried many different things. I tried writing it as an American-accented first person, you know, um, sort of like John Grisham's The Firm, except, you know, the Tom Cruise guy is actually a Pakistani, uh, uh, you know, protagonist. And I've seen the movie of of, of the film, I haven't actually read the book. But, um, uh, uh, I thought it would be like that. You The know, first one-third kid goes to good school, gets job at corporate firm, things become a bit sketchy, goes downhill. Um, but that failed, as you can imagine, you know, pretty uh, horribly. And then you know, I tried writing it in third person. I tried all these different approaches. And then we're working. Um, and, and a big part of why they weren't working was I, I didn't really want to say This is what America is like, and this is what Muslims think, and, you know, here you go. I wanted to um, invite the reader to experience a space of ambiguity, which would hopefully allow the reader to reflect upon their own attitudes, um, you know, towards this uh, quote-unquote conflict. Um, And, you know, how do you do that? So eventually I came up with the idea that the best way to do this is as a dramatic monologue where the main character Chingiz is speaking to somebody who is presumably an American you know, stranger with a crew cut, uh, fit looking guy, you know, maybe a CIA agent, maybe a bemused Canadian tourist wondering why the hell does this guy keep calling me an American. Um, and so he would be speaking to this American character, but we would never hear what the American says back. So the dramatic monologue is like a one-man play where you stand on stage speaking to you, and you are some character, but the you never speaks back. And the nice thing about that was I thought, well, half the story is then missing. And the reader has to supply that half. And so the reader is always going to be destabilized trying to figure out how much do I trust this Chingiz guy? What's really going on? So so that was one part of the solution that eventually made the novel work for me. The second thing was the voice. You know, how should this character sound? And so I thought that, you know, I sometimes describe The Rutten Fundamentalist uh, as a thriller in which nothing thrilling happens. You know, that sort of you're, by the end, hopefully, many people, many reviews would say, you know, it's chilling, and you know, this is, you're terrified, and, and all. But actually, it's just a, two guys having a conversation. That's the entire book. Um, so, but how to create that thriller effect? Where's the thrill gonna come from? Um, and I thought, you know, the thrill will come from the voice of this character. Um, Chingese's voice, perhaps can be made to resonate with certain preconceptions about islam and so i thought you know what what might a reader who is not muslim imagine islam to be if islam were a voice what would it sound like um, now, in a sense, that's an absurd question because, of course, there's you know billion-plus Muslims, and there's everything from you know um, the Taliban warriors to you know uh, gay fashion designers to you know atheistic Muslims to um, you know people who are completely uninformed about their religious tradition. It's a diverse, you know, as diverse as Christianity or any other religion. So, there's no sound of Islam in reality. But there might be a sound of what people imagine Islam to be like, or some people imagine Islam to be like. The stereotype of Islam is a more coherent thing than Islam itself, obviously. So I thought, okay, what would it sound like? So maybe people think that Islam is this thing from the past. You know, it belongs to some older period. It's kind of old-fashioned in a way. And maybe people think that it is very strict. It's got, like, rules. It's very formal. Um, and maybe people think it's vaguely menacing so I thought how about a voice which is sort of feels like it comes from the past um, is very formal um, and has within it at least the potentiality of being read as menacing Um, and so um, the voice that I thought could do this is in many of the private schools in Pakistan the elite private schools that were set up by the British in the late Victorian period um, you're taught English, in a way, which is like sort of a late 19th century English. Now, many people emerge from these schools speaking like me or with various kinds of mongrelized accents or other Pakistani accents. But every so often, somebody pops out who speaks as though you know, they went to Sandhurst in like 1870, like a, like a British you know, general or like Duke, uh, but from 100 years ago. And, you, you know, and living in Lahore, I would meet people like and say, you know, you've lived here your whole life. This is interesting. And I realize that partly people speak like that because um, the, the attempt is to convey a kind of class position. If you speak in a particularly proper British way, it means that you're an upper-class person. And my character, Chingiz, had a good reason to speak like this because he was from a formerly upper-class family that was broke. And so he felt insecure about that. So he's even more likely to try to use his accent to uphold his position or project a position in society. So that's where the voice came from. Um, and anyway, this is what it sounds like, so it's just theoretical, book. many of you will not have read this book. I'll just read you the first couple, like one or two pages, and it all goes on like this. This is, this, is, this is chapter one. Excuse me, sir, but may I be of assistance? Ah, I see I have alarmed you. I notice you are looking for something. More than looking, in fact, you seem to be on a mission and since I'm both a native of this city and a speaker of your language I thought I might offer you my services. How did I know you were American? No, not by the color of your skin. We have a range of complexions in this country and yours occurs often among the people of our northwest frontier. Nor was it your dress that gave you away. A European tourist could as easily have purchased in Des Moines your suit with its single vent and your button-down shirt. True, your hair short cropped and your expansive chest, the chest, I would say, of a man who bench presses regularly and maxes out well above 225, are typical of a certain type of American. But then again, sportsmen and soldiers of all nationalities tend to look alike. Instead, it was your bearing that allowed me to identify you. And I do not mean that as an insult, for I see your face is hardened, but merely as an observation. Come, tell me, what were you looking for? Surely at this time of day, only one thing could have brought you to the district of Old and Arcale, named, as you may be aware, after a courtesan immured for loving a prince. And that is the quest for the perfect cup of tea. Um, now, whether the American is there really for tea or not, is, is uh, uh, we shall find out. Um, but the Rotten Fundamentalist uh, became... Um, well, it, 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 the reception of *Darfur Fundamentalists* was very interesting for me. Um, so, uh, you know, it was—it was—it was, um, it, it became a very popular book in a sense that um, uh, uh, many copies of the Fundamentalists* were sold, and—and and I think. In part, it entered into certain types of conversations. So um, unlike Mott Smoke, which had come out at a time when people were perhaps less interested in Pakistan in, in the United States or in Britain, um Malt Smoke went on to become a kind of cult hit in South Asia. Lots of teenagers and 20-somethings would read it. I once went to a concert in India completely anonymously with you know, hundreds of people and somebody tapped me on the shoulder. I turned around and he said, are you Mohsen Hamid?" And I said, yeah. He said, the guy wrote Mott Smoke? I said, "Yeah." He took a joint out from behind his ear and says, "I really want to smoke this doobie with you." <laughs> and, uh, and that's when I knew that the youth had uh, had internalized the message of Mott's Smoke. But, but the other fundamentalist, in a sense, had a, found a very wide readership also outside of South Asia, um, much more so than Mott's Smoke had. And I think. Um, uh, uh, some people find it provocative there are scenes in the book which which um, uh, perhaps do read as, as provocative um, but I think and I hope that partly um, it it allows people to experience um, themselves in a way that it's better fundamentalist is kind of a mirror um, to the reader and I think a lot of people, um, seemed to be interested in looking into that mirror and, and seeing what they found. At least that's what my understanding of, of perhaps why um, uh, it, it, it became widely read uh, in lots of different places. Um, it then resulted in a, uh, a movie. So the Indian film director I approached me in London and um, I was living there at the time. I moved to London in July 2001. Um, and uh, in fact, once I came back to America uh, a few months later and at the immigration, the immigration officer asked me, so you live in London now? I said, yes. When did you move to uh, London? You know, July 2001. Oh, just before 9-11, <laughs> <laughs> to which I sort of said, yes. Um, you know, It seemed very ominous as though you must have known. <laughs> you got out just in time, didn't you? But anyway, it was one of those odd things. Um, so, yeah, I moved just before September 11th. I experienced September 11th outside of the US. In fact, my ex-roommate worked in the World Financial Center um, and for a while couldn't get through to, uh, to her. And so um, I had a very, uh, uh, as a New Yorker, I was no longer living in New York. I'd left New York before this event. Um Mirna and I approached me. And Mira and I, was a director I admired. I really enjoyed uh, Monsoon Wedding among other films, and I thought Salam Bombay was uh, really a, a spectacular film and groundbreaking in so many ways for South Asian cinema. Um, I think it's the first uh, Oscar-nominated uh, film uh, from South Asia, um, uh, although I might, might be wrong about that. But um, so she approached me and saying I wanted to adapt. She wanted to adapt this film. And we met, and she's a Punjabi, um, and her father was from Lahore, and she had a real love for the city. And, um, and she, uh, her husband, uh, Mahmood Mamdani, is a, uh, was a Columbia University professor, still is. Um, her son, Zoran, um, young man of you know, both Muslim and, uh, and Hindu heritage. Um, so, so Mira, in a sense, wanted to bo- to enter into this world of Lahore that she felt a kind of familiar attachment to, and also enter into this conversation which she saw had, in a sense, swept up not just her husband but her son, um, who was now being stopped at airports all around the world, etc. Um, you know, as a, a potential Muslim himself, um, and so she wanted to make a film about this, and it was an incredibly uh, difficult uh, project. Uh, first of all, it was difficult to adapt because um, the book doesn't really lend itself to being a film. It's, it's sort of a one-man show where you effectively, if you do, do, did it faithfully, you just see the camera looking at one guy standing in a cafe, talking at the camera, and pretending the camera was an American. Uh, as Mir told me, that had very limited cinematic uh, potential. <laughs> so so she wanted to have a new, new frame for it, a new structure for it. Um, along the way, uh, all kinds of hurdles had to be crossed. So, for example, she talked talk to some you know, great Hollywood screenwriters, you know, very well-known people who won big awards, and one of them said in a way which is kind of typical, uh, he said to her, uh, he, said he had a problem with the title, and he said, you know, Mira, there ain't no such thing as a reluctant fundamentalist. Yeah. And she said, well, you know, I'll get back to you. Um, and uh, didn't work out. And so eventually what she found was it was almost impossible to get somebody who could both write corporate Wall Street type life and South Asian, um, you know, family life, and also a a thriller, because she wanted to be a thriller. Um, So she asked me to collaborate with her and Ami Bogani, who was at the time her assistant, to co-write a first draft, which I did, and then handed over to Bill Wheeler, um, an LA-based screenwriter, to then take it forward. Uh, also, getting the thing financed was next to impossible. So, nobody in America wanted to finance this film with this brown Muslim guy as the protagonist and, uh, you know, who, who uh, behaves really um, in some not so nice ways along the way. Um, and also, Indian film um, financiers who were dying to finance Mira's next film, etc., suddenly disappeared when this became the next film. Um, and, uh, and in the end, uh, there were a variety of financiers from the Middle East um, and Turkey uh, uh, who, who signed up, but some of them fell through, um, but eventually it did get financed. Uh, but then they couldn't get an insurance bond to cover a shooting in Pakistan. so. The film was never uh, to, to take Mira and the crew and the, and the cast to Pakistan. Um, no insurance company would underwrite that. And you can't do a film which is not underwritten by insurance because if something were to happen, the financiers uh, wouldn't get their money back. So what the compromise that was reached was a, a second crew would film exteriors in Lahore um, and the primary shooting of Lahore scenes would happen in Delhi with a bunch of us flying over from Lahore to Delhi. Um, to help help with that, um, so there are many many challenges. Uh, one of the biggest changes was that in the uh, book we don't know who the American is, um, and we don't really know what happens at the end. In the movie, um, they wanted an ending. But well, we do know what happens, and the American was played by Leah Schreiber, and has an actual backstory and events, and you know there's actual CIA, you know, snipers and all that kind of stuff um, emerging. So in that sense, the film didn't have the same ambiguity as the novel. Um, but the ambiguity of the novel functions in a way to hopefully break down. Um, these silos that we pretend to find ourselves inside of, you know, Muslim, American, Pakistani, whatever, and helps us transcend, I would hope, transcend a little bit of that that, uh, silo mentality. I think the film did that in a very different way because, you know, never before that I'm aware of have you had an Indian film director taking on a novel written by a Pakistani writer, Um, having a British-Pakistani actor, Riz Ahmed, who was brilliant um, in the lead, um, his parents played by a pair of Indian actors, Shibana Azmi and Om Puri, and and, and having in an, a supporting role, um, Kate Hudson, Kiefer Sutherland, and Leah Schreiber. Normally in a film which has Kate Hudson, Kiefer Sutherland, Leah Schreiber, and Riz Ahmed, uh, Riz Ahmed gets shot 30 minutes in and is dead. <laughs> right, and then we continue with the with the other three in, in the lead. But in this case, of course, Riz is in the lead, um, which is a real act of generosity in a way on the part of those actors to agree to come on board in a film where they are all leading actors, where they're in a sense they're, they're playing a, a supporting role. Um, and of course we had Pakistani actors like Misha Shafi. So, um, uh, and we had a you know, cast, uh, we had a crew from all over the world, you know, South Africa, Britain, America, India, Pakistan. So in a sense, the film, the making of the film involved I think a similar kind of transcending of silos and and showing that people from all over the place could come together and make something that hopefully is powerful and beautiful. Um, And so it operated in a different way from the novel but I think for me was a gesture that was very complimentary to the novel. Um, I won't say much more about it because I think we're running out of time. I'll just say a few last words about um, my most recent novel which is called How to Get Filthy Rich in Rising Asia. Um, How to Get Filthy Rich in Rising Asia is a self-help book. Now. It, it, it pretends to be a self-help book that tells you how to get filthy rich in rising Asia. Actually, it doesn't pretend. It kind of is a self-help book that tells you how to get filthy rich in rising Asia. But it really follows the arc of a human being's life, a young boy, from his childhood until the end of his life of old age, um, who's, who's migrated to some city, um, and I use as my model, Lahore. But I intentionally didn't use any names in the book, so it could be set in really any big city in South Asia. Many people in India and elsewhere have said, oh, this seems like my city. Uh, in fact, a Mexican team has optioned the film rights to the book, and the first thing they said me, to me was, this could be set in Mexico City, um, which I liked because I felt, you know, too often if you write about Pakistan or Lahore, there's a kind of exoticization that takes place. So this is interesting because it's exotic. But I was more interested in saying, well, this is a book about the city and about the mass migration of you know a billion people who are going to move to large cities in the next decade or two a scale of migration within countries which is you know many many times bigger the migration between countries we hear a lot about people moving to you know uh, america from mexico or moving to europe from north africa but those movements are actually very small compared to the number of people who are moving from rural pakistan to urban pakistan or rural china to urban china or rural india or rural nigeria to urban uh, india and nigeria um so, I wanted to write about that and about the new city that was emerging. And I thought, you know, instead of Lahore being this exotic place, um, why not use Lahore as a template for the universal city? You know, why do, if you write about the city, if you say New York, it's immediately assumed that you're talking about every city in the world. If you, you can use New York as a template. But why can't Lahore be a universal city? So I wanted to sort of explore the idea that maybe every place is as central and as universal as every other place. Um, and, and in fact, perhaps there are more cities in the world like Lahore than there are cities like New York, in fact. So, um, so that was then the, the idea for this novel. Um, but given the particular context in which we're speaking today uh, uh, with the Abbasi program Islamic Studies um, having asked me to give this talk um, I want to speak about one other aspect of the novel which was um, you know it, it's it's sort of a self-help book about how to get rich but not really um, it's it, in a deeper sense for me the idea was you know maybe all novels are self-help books um, and you know how, how? so? Well, why do I write novels? Uh, you know, my my job consists of sitting by myself in a room for hours a day, for years at a time, staring at a wall, making stuff up, you know, quietly. Uh, that's a very bizarre behavior for any forty-two-year-old, you know, man to be engaged in. Um, it's a pretty weird thing to do with your time. Um, so clearly, it's meeting some need for me. Writing fiction It's doing something for me. There's something about this practice which is which is personally helping i hope Um, but also reading i think in a sense because it allows you to transcend your own experience and to um, introduce into your mind the place where you keep your thoughts the thoughts of another human being Um, there's a certain kind of transcendent impulse in in reading a novel Um, and uh, uh, we talk about self-help but uh, but self-help is, is, in a sense, often a narcissistic category. Everybody knows self-help. I don't really read self-help books, but any newspaper or magazine you open will be full of self-help, you know, how to have six-pack abs, how to be a fantastic lover, how to live to a hundred, you know. But these are all narcissistic projects. Uh, the problem with these kinds of self-help uh, models is that, you know, the self is going to end. You know, we will all die. And the more centered we are in the self, in a sense, the more terrifying this predicament becomes. And it seems to me that um, on the one hand we have the market, which is getting more and more powerful everywhere, and the market is about acting in your self-interest, and it sort of reinforces the self. And then we have you know, tra- traditions like you know religious traditions, spiritual traditions, philosophical traditions, cultural traditions, that have been about mitigating the self, about saying that the self isn't really all that important. Um, um, don't get too hung up on the self. But unfortunately, um, as we see sort of the degree of politicization of religion that's taking place in, in, in the current moment, um, it seems that a lot of religion is becoming about uh, group dynamics. In other words, are you a Muslim, are you not a Muslim? Are you a Christian, are you not a Christian? If you're a Christian, are you Catholic or Protestant? What kind of Protestant are you? What kind of Sunni are you? Um, As opposed to saying, that we are all united by a kind of predicament of being human and these various different traditions offer us um, ways to to feel, um, you know, less overwhelmed by that predicament, Um, we're seeing a a kind of worldwide movement to uh, rejecting that commonality in a way, Um, and in the process also rejecting the core power of religion, which is to make mortal life more bearable. Um, So I thought that this is something which um, I wanted to explore whether fiction could deal with and novels could deal with. But of course I wasn't the first person to have this idea because the dominant literary form where I uh, live in Lahore, Pakistan, has for many centuries um, been the Sufi love poem. And sort of for those of you who aren't familiar with Sufism, Sufism is is a mystical strand within the uh, Muslim tradition. that, that tends to, I mean there's many different uh, variations, but to, to generalize unfairly, um, that tends to use love as a lens for trying to um, you know, uh, comprehend the universe, comprehend one's relationship to the world, to the divine. Um, and because of the difference, oftentimes, between Sufi positions and, and Orthodox uh, uh, positions, or positions of of Orthodox uh, of the Orthodoxy in power, very often um, Sufi texts, as opposed to being a direct manual saying, you know, this is how you become a good Sufi or this is how you you know achieve unity with the universe, um, express themselves through poems, and and, uh, and and fiction, and but particularly epic poems. Um, so we have works by writers such as, you know, Rumi, which have still exist and are, you know, massively popular even today. Um, and I wanted to sort of explore creating a text that was, in a sense, um, uh, a uh, of that tradition, um, yet without necessarily being grounded in any religious specificity. So... So I wanted to write a role which didn't require you to believe in God or to to believe in, you know, being a Muslim or being a Sufi or any of this kind of stuff, Um, but yet adopted a similar view that a certain degree of transcendence might be possible. And if so, how do you find it? How do we find it? Um, Can the act of reading offer that transcendence? Can the act of writing offer that transcendence? Are there types of love? that, that might offer that kind of transcendence. And, and you have to read the book to know if you think it works. I'll just read you as I stop now uh, a couple of pages, then we'll have some questions. Um, but uh, uh, for me, I think it's very important to, to, to not allow there to be this divide between a kind of secular space and a religious space, um, where there's just two different conversations happening separately. Um, I think the danger of that divide is it leaves these issues insufficiently addressed Um, and so for example in in often in a militantly atheist position that you'll hear um, people expounding you know saying that there is no such thing as this that the other your faith is ridiculous etc I I tend to find that that position um, uh, uh, not very helpful at a certain level because um, even if you believe that people's faith is wrong, it's very difficult to come to the conclusion that the impulse to have faith um, is doesn't exist. Clearly, a vast majority of people on planet Earth do feel the impulse to have faith. That comes from something, um, and you have to address that impulse. Um, but similarly, on the religious side, to not engage in this kind of you know secular uh, with secular with secular conversations about these sorts of issues is I think also mistaken and, and the collective mistake of on both uh, you know in much religious discourse and much uh, non-religious discourse um, I think is leaving in the contemporary world this 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 um, a huge lacuna and the result of that is a kind of if you're religious a, a massive spiritual crisis on planet earth and if you're not religious I think it's a massive mental health crisis it's the same thing um, where you have really an epidemic of, of depression um, and, uh, 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 and I think there's not really that much difference psychically or, or, or uh, uh, psychologically between the young teenage boy who walks into a shopping mall in Lahore with a suicide bomb vest on and laces his arm and blows himself up and kills 15 other people and the young you know, teenager who walks into a school in Colorado and guns down 15 of his peers. Um, of course, the politics is different, the context is different, but I, I suspect that the mental health and or spiritual position actually is um, is quite similar. So I think it's important to talk about this stuff because I think our world is hurtling into a, into a place where as we ignore these things, um, uh, you know, we, are, we are entering kind of mon- monstrous terrain. So um, I'm going to stop there. I'll just read to you one or two pages, and then I'll take questions. And in particular, I'd love to have questions from, from, from students at Stanford. Um, uh, it's always a particular pleasure to get a chance to speak to um, uh, college students. So this is, the, this is the very beginning of how to get rich and rising age. Each chapter in this book is a is – there's 12 chapters, and each one is a kind of self-help Maxim. The first one is move to the city. The second one is get an education. The third one is don't fall in love. The fourth one is etc. etc. This is chapter one move to the city. Look, unless you're writing one, a self help book is an oxymoron. You read a self help book so someone who isn't yourself can help you. That's someone being the author. This is true of the whole self help genre, it's true of how to books, for example and it's true of personal improvement books too some might even say it's true of religion books but some others might say that those who say that should be pinned to the ground and bled dry with a slow slice of a blade across their throats so it's wiser simply to note a divergence of views on that subcategory and move swiftly on none of the foregoing means self-help books are useless on the contrary they can be useful indeed But it does mean that the idea of self in the land of self-help is a slippery one. And slippery can be good. Slippery can be pleasurable. Slippery can provide access to what would chafe if entered dry. This book is a self-help book. Its objective, as it says on the cover, is to show you how to get filthy rich in rising Asia. And to do that, it has to find you, huddled, shivering, on the packed earth under your mother's cot, one cold, dewy morning. Your anguish is the anguish of a boy whose chocolate has been thrown away, whose remote controls are out of batteries, whose scooter is busted, whose new sneakers have been stolen. This is all the more remarkable since you've never in your life seen any of these things. The whites of your eyes are yellow, a consequence of spiking bilirubin levels in your blood. The virus afflicting you is called hepatitis E. Its typical mode of transmission is fecal-oral. Yum. It kills only about 1 in 50, so you're likely to recover, but right now you feel like you're going to die. Your mother's encountered this condition many times, or conditions like it anyway, so maybe she doesn't think you're going to die. Then again, maybe she does. Maybe she fears it. Everyone is going to die. And when a mother like yours sees in a third-born child like you the pain that makes you whimper under her cot the way you do, Maybe she feels your death push forward a few decades, take off its dark, dusty headscarf, and settle with open-haired familiarity and a lascivious smile into this, the single mud-walled room she shares with all of her surviving offspring. What she says is, don't leave us here. I'll stop there, and um, would love to get some questions.